0: Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, Episode 2, with Scott Moulton. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? Very good. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm Steve from Podnuts. And uh, Scott is uh, what I like to call a hard drive ninja. He has a company called MyHardDriveDied.com, uh, which he started, when basically that branched off of your forensics business. Isn't that right, Scott?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And uh, why don't you tell us again a little bit about your company and what you do?
1: Well, primarily, uh, my company is a forensics company, and we run a data recovery company inside the same company. So we do the same processes with hard drives for recovery that we do with forensics drives and other drives that uh, are damaged and that has physical problems that we're trying to recover content for. And so we will we run them both side by side. So we'll actually sit there and actually do investigations and go through material. And then we have a lab bench that's separated for the data recovery side, where we'll actually continue to perform the recoveries throughout the day as well, while we're working on other tasks. Hmm.
0: That sounds like a, set, a setup that would make a lot of people envious, especially like uh, computer repair guys.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of people who come in here, and they and you know they're they're pretty uh, happy about my setup. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to try to send you some business. I do have um, one person that came in today, and uh, or actually a couple, no, not today, but I have the drive today from a couple days ago, and uh, I can't do anything with it. I think she needs some some stuff off of that so
1: okay great i'd love it
0: cool all right well um we were talking earlier before we started the show you said you had a rather odd story about a hard drive you were working on
1: yeah uh what happened is uh i've got a a friend who has an as 400 so uh so for those of you who don't know what an as 400 is it's a ibm uh basically it's a, a mini like a You know, System 36, basically, is the next rev of the System 36. So it's it's a little bit unusual. It's not the kind of thing that, you know, you just find at at a home uh, or anything like that. So he's dealing with a corporate situation where he has uh, multiple drives that are in this AS400. And he needed to get them cloned. He needed to get a a copy of them so that he could make sure that uh, what he was doing wasn't going to mess with the system at all. So what was, what was unusual about this is that uh, initially what would happen is I wanted to use a write blocker to plug these drives into so that while I was cloning them on a Windows machine or something that they wouldn't make any modifications to the disk even though they're not going to mount it because it's, the operating system is a different operating system. Um, but the problem I kept running into is I would plug the drive into a write blocker and the write blockers would lock up which I really haven't ever seen a write blocker actually lock up before. Uh, so we did, uh, We did. they were SCSI drives, so we moved the jumpers on the SCSI drive to their write block position so that the drive itself was actually write blocked rather than having to use a device. And we would plug it into a Windows machine and the Windows machine would just crash. <laughs> so uh, again, we knew the drives were fine, they came out of a working system uh... and everything looked perfectly fine but windows would crash so so then we went through the process well hey you know let's go get a couple of derivatives of linux and try to start it up with linux and, uh... while linux was booting in many cases they would crash or hang and never complete they would just physically just hang right there so we never got too far with most of those either now i did have a uh... specific setup of ubuntu 9.4 the newest version and uh... i had installed I use it for data recovery for other purposes, Um, and I had installed a bunch of tools, including one set of tools that's uh, in Linux called SCSI tools. So when I booted the drive in this system, it came up in the logs, and it told me that the uh, byte size for the sector size was different than the standard. The standard that I've seen on every drive so far, uh, you know, with the exception of a few things like um, uh, like some old, I don't know if you remember like Bernoulli drives and things like that, Bernoulli drives, they had a different sector size, uh, 2K sectors. Hmm. But, but uh, all hard drives have 512-byte sectors or all PC hard drives have had 512-byte sectors. Well, the log actually displayed and said that this particular drive had 522-byte sectors. So the sectors were a different sector size, and that's what was causing the systems to crash. We were actually able to figure out that we could actually pass some SCSI. like, Like IDE, there are these commands that you can send to SCSI devices as well, just like the ATA command set for IDE devices or SATA devices. And so there were some for SCSI, and I was able to actually send a... A set of them to the drive using SCSI tools to actually clone the device to a file uh, using these 522 byte sector sizes. Um, but it's the first time I've seen one uh, ever, at least from this standpoint, without it being like a, a worm drive or something else. It, it was completely unexpected that we would actually have a, a drive, a physical drive that looked like every other drive that would be 522 byte sectors.
0: How, like, how, that was only on one drive, right?
1: Uh there are four drives in this particular system and they are in a RAID 0 uh so they they physically are written across all the drives.
0: Okay, so all four drives had the 522. Yes, that's correct. How did that happen? Is that the, the is that somebody at the factory hitting a 2 instead of a 1 or what?
1: No, uh that's that's the default for those particular drives for the AS400 that actually is what it what it uses. Huh. It's just uh I have not had the experience in this particular situation. I've done some, you know, really old systems that have been around for a while and done a number of different things like uh, SGI with, you know, XFS and things like that and they've still always been 512 byte sectors. I haven't run into t- any that actually were 522 byte sectors. So, this was kind of a new experience for me to actually see that the AS400 had a different size for their sector size physically on the device. And apparently that extra 10 sectors or so was just for like ECC. It was completely, uh, it was not technically relevant to the data itself. It was only for error checking and
0: device checking. I see. It It doesn't affect the performance at all, does it?
1: Uh no, I, you know from the standpoint of it was designed that way. I, I doubt seriously that that was a performance problem from that standpoint. But for error checking and for redundancy and things like that, it uh, it it must have been much better from a standpoint of error correction because they had a bigger block size that they could actually use for error correction. So it probably does a much better job at error correction if it runs into a problem.
0: Huh. So what do you, what do you think would be better if you had a choice, a five twelve or a five twenty two, or does it not matter really?
1: Well, uh, if we had an option to actually have more ECC, uh, a larger block size for error correction, we would actually have less data loss because uh, as a sector goes bad, the more data that you can actually use for redundancy for the ECC, the more likely you are to be able to recover that sector that's damaged. So <clears throat> so you know, if you had something that's actually trying to reassemble it from the error correcting code, you would actually get something back that actually made sense. I see. So, so you know, obviously if we could sacrifice twice as much space, we basically would be using, you know, error correction to actually correct any problems that we actually have. So it's completely plausible. That's, that's, that's the fundamentals of some of the functions of RAID and how RAID works to actually go back and recreate the data from a, a mathematical formula as well.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. I mean, it's probably more more... Um crazy for you to find that than me. I don't think I would have figured that one out actually. <laughs> but
1: uh, it took a little bit of time though. And and if it hadn't have been for actually been you know, and it was just somewhat coincidental that I had SCSI tools pre-installed right. on this particular uh uh Ubuntu box that I was doing uh for another project that I had been working on because I think that without it it may it may have hung like some of the other systems that I previously was because I had actually tried to boot on Ubuntu eight point four without any modifications done to it, and it hung on 8.4, and huh. it did not 8.04. Huh.
0: Very interesting. Okay, Scott, well, the topic for today's show uh, we discussed is, and this is on, actually a suggestion from one of the Pod Nuts listeners, uh, solid-state drives versus, you know, the standard magnetic drives with, with the spinning platters inside. Uh, the differences, you know, what, what's better, what's going to be, what's the future, uh, what do you prefer? Like the different different aspects of each one, and uh, I'd like to basically at the end, I guess, uh, make a decision which one we think is best. And okay. W- so, in your experience, do you have experience working with the solid state drives? Yes, I do. Okay. If you could, in your your comprehensive knowledge, can you just lay out for us basic the basic differences between these two drives?
1: Yeah. The uh, the fundamentals, though, when you're talking about uh, solid state disks, which people keep you know, referring to as SSDs. Um, now, one of the things is this term is kind of getting a little bit mixed up, kind of like the difference between routers and gateways and things like that have kind of got a little mixed up or merged into the same uh, same type of definition. Uh, because typically when you're talking about SSDs, you're talking about solid state devices just means there's no moving parts. So basically I have memory or I have a no moving parts whatsoever and physically I'm gonna use that for a drive. So that technically would include USB memory sticks and even if you just took memory and soldered it onto a board, kind of like what happens in uh, the netbooks and things where they say they have SSD, but what they really have is memory soldered onto the board. It just means there's no moving parts. Um, But traditionally right now what has happened is when you say SSD, most people are thinking I've got a drive and that drive can be plugged into a computer in the place of another drive. So it has an emulation mode basically that is SATA or IDE. It's basically emulating a physical disk. So when you're looking at marketing and you're looking at, well, I'm buying a USB memory stick, it is an SSD but it's a USB memory stick and it uses a driver from your operating system to work. And it doesn't have any way of actually emulating itself, an IDE interface. It doesn't have a processor that's powerful enough to do everything on its own. Whereas the SSD drive itself actually has a processor and actually keeps track of content, has logs, and emulates IDE or, or SATA from that standpoint. It's actually the same, same basic thing just a change in the interface. And will function as a hard drive and take care of all those requests when the operating system makes a request to it. So that's kind of what's happening with this is that everybody's just kind of, you know, saying SSD for everything. Uh, But now the marketing term has kind of turned it into just to mean these hard drives that emulate or these, you know, these physical solid state disks that emulate IDE controllers or emulate IDE functions.
0: What do you think they should be called? A proper name?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I'm not opposed to SSD. I, you know, typically, you know, I you know it's still a function of the connector it's still a function of an emulation mode so you know you know maybe you know ide flash or something or I you know maybe we need a new term or a new something new that differentiates them from the other ssd which would be you know a, a usb memory stick or right. something of that type
0: right yeah interesting i mean because when i th- when i think of ssd i don't even think of a flash drive which is what i call a memory stick like a flash drive i think of it as the actual hard drive so Whatever marketing has been put in place, it's it's been working on me.
1: Okay, well, that's good.
0: <laughs> I mean, even though it's it's you're right, it's true. Not in the truest definition of solid state, it means just no moving parts, right?
1: Right. Well, I, I mean, we do have solid state discs that have been around a lot longer than these these current ones that are physically on the market. We have solid state discs that have been made of DRAM. And you probably remember like some boards for a while, there are several vendors like Gigabyte or Gigabit or somebody sold a board that you could put memory on and basically would make it, you know, a battery powered hard drive. And for military purposes and bank transactions and things like that for 30 years plus, they've actually had that already as an existing function in their business. And so most banks who do hundreds of thousands of transactions a second are going to have a SSD drive, basically, that's going to be a bank of DRAM, <laughs> which is uh, about three hundred, you know, two hundred, three hundred times faster than any of the solid-state disks that we're dealing with now, uh, physically in the bank, being able to actually make those transactions, or you know, a, a, an armored vehicle or something that might be moving that doesn't, does can't have moving parts, or doesn't need to have moving parts while they're you know driving over dunes or something like that.
0: Well, then let me ask you, Scott, why don't you think that they implemented those instead of these? This this uh, drive technology.
1: Well, the first thing is, is that the, that type of technology is typically still going to look like a blade server, still going to look like a server. It's still a fairly large device and it still has battery powered functions and it still does kind of do the same functions like it is RAM. It is live RAM that's pretending to be kind of like a RAM disk. And when it loses power or there's some critical problem, it still can shut itself down and hibernate very, you know, it's very similar to like a PC does when it hibernates. It takes all that content, writes it from memory to a physical disk. And then when it comes back online, it can bring it back from the physical disk and then put it back into the state that it was, you know, when it was running. So they are not just like a little convenient disk that you can stick in your machine. Uh, physically, the the type of memory that's on those types of devices that's going in your machine for an SSD is called NAND. And so, NAND is a type of memory that's basically been around since 1984, 1985, and has gradually over time become more cost effective as it's gotten more and more use. Uh, And then around 2001, 2002, where we started coming out with USB memory sticks, it has driven the price down and development has gone up, uh, making larger and larger chips until the prices drop down enough. They can take those in combination and build a board that actually has a controller on it and make a hard drive out of it.
0: Hmm. So right now, it's just it would be a size problem with these if they wanted to do it that particular way.
1: Um, it's a size problem but it's also uh, DRAM does not DRAM is the same RAM that you have in your machine. Okay. There is no there is no it is, it is not non volatile. I mean it's physically the data will be gone I if see. the power is off.
0: Interesting. Okay. You know cuz I'm sure people are going to mess with around with that and that technology in the future or whatever It's going to make it faster, you know what I mean? Right. If there's a way well, that, there, if there's a way they that have you been- could keep that data <laughs>
1: They have been trying to advance that process, obviously, and things have been getting faster. Some of it is actually by using combinations of that. You know, using RAM and using a buffer, uh, which is the way hard drives typically work as well. That there is, there is a buffer, and so you know, you go to the store and you buy a hard drive, and it says, "I got a 16 meg cache or something on the board," so it has a DRAM cache. Hmm in addition to physically storing the data on the drive right. and when solid state discs the actual ide versions of the solid state disc came out initially they didn't they didn't have buffers uh, a lot of them didn't have any memory in them except for the nand memory itself and you kind of see the you know the people who are developing silicon and dealing with that kind of go well we don't need memory it is memory huh. and uh, so there have been some problems with them the older ssd drives the first generations and some of the second generations didn't have any buffer, and they aged poorly because there there is cells that will die inside the NAND, and over time it, it's really basically kind of fragmented from that standpoint. Uh, it's uh it's got another translator that translates where the data is laid out because it gets shuffled around inside the NAND memory.
0: And are these things designed to know when a cell dies and not to to write anything there? Or?
1: Yes, they are designed to do that. The problem is is that because of the way that the blocks are designed, you lose a bigger chunk of memory when a cell dies. If a single cell dies, currently in any kind of uh, any kind of NAND memory that's larger than two hundred and fifty six megs, most developers are choosing a uh, a fairly large block size, which turns out to be about one hundred and twenty eight k so if a if one cell goes bad, in that block, the entire block is marked bad, so you lose the 128K from the entire block. So you'll actually see, like a USB memory stick, decrease in size over time if cells are dying and going bad in it.
0: <laughs> now, is that, still, a, is, is that still a problem nowadays?
1: Yes, it is a it is a constant continual problem, yes, and especially quality really matters at this point because uh, it used to be you know like if you, and if you're going to be somebody like Cisco or something and you're going to have RAM in your in your box you're going to buy the better stuff and so what happens is, is is the content is divided up into consumer grade and and industrial grade so the industrial grade stuff is the stuff that you know when they bake it they bake it for three weeks and whatever survives is the stuff that actually is going to go to the industrial grade the uh, the the cheaper stuff the stuff that won't survive or you know isn't as intense from that standpoint basically gets uh sent out on mass market stuff so <laughs> we're getting the cheaper stuff that's you know making its way into uh, usb memory sticks and things like that but they they do die as you're using them and i have some that i've been using for my sans class uh, the the content that goes on my uh, sans class memory sticks over a year period of time has gradually decreased so that now that the actual drive, I use a image, I make a physical image of the disc and then I deploy it for the next class back to the same memory stick so that the student gets exactly the same thing that, you know, the last student got. Right. Um, And over a year period of time, a big chunk of that has died on each one of those memory sticks to the point now that the image is larger than the actual physical (laughs) disc.
0: That's funny. Um, Now, I mean, this might seem like a stupid question, but okay, these cells are dying in in there. Um, Do they die while there's data on it or they will only, um, like, is it possible for these cells to go bad while there's data on them?
1: Of course, yes. Okay,
0: Okay, so you just, you could actually lose data physically and then, is there any way to recover that?
1: At this point... There is a way to recover the data, but this is the kind of thing where, like, we're we're chasing our tail again. There's new stuff coming out, and we're not fully developed at this point in time, so we don't have a lot of the equipment like we do with hard drives. And there's some new technology. There's new things over the last six months or so that have been coming out with uh, ROM readers and things like that where you can actually take the chips out and try to read them or try to read, you know, how many electrons are actually stored in a cell so you can determine what its state was and things like that. But, wow. uh it's extremely difficult. It really isn't an easy task at this point. um Most of the time, we're hoping obviously that the NAND itself, the chip itself, is intact, and that whatever the problem is, if there's any kind of loss or anything, is because of some other you know capacitor resistor or something else that we can repair but physically in that RAM um where or the flash memory itself, when there's damage or something else happens, it could lose that sector. Uh, and possibly not be able to recover that sector.
0: I see. All right. Well, let me ask you this then. If you had a choice, like you bought a laptop and you had a choice of a solid-state drive or hard drive, at this point in time today, which one would you choose and why?
1: Right now, I would say that we still have a size issue. Um, So, for instance, it's convenient to get, say, a 128-gig hard drive right now, I mean, a 128-gig flash drive Mm-hmm. and keep that in your laptop and survive on it. 128 gig is, is probably survivable from that standpoint. But your your competition is a 500 gig hard drive of the same physical size. So it's kind of a race to decide, you know, do you need the space? Uh, you know, because just a year ago or six months ago, we only really had 64 gigs that were available for, you know, like when yeah. the MacBook Air came out, for instance, it came out with a 64 gig um and then gradually, as time has gone on, the price has dropped one hundred and twenty eight gig was available, but it was you know way over a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. Now the price has dropped down to you know less than five hundred in most cases so wow. you can so you can walk away with hundred and twenty eight gig. It will be faster, and certainly right away it will be faster as it ages. Um, I have had a solid state disk in a laptop for over two years. And I paid a lot of money for it to be in that <laughs> laptop. And uh, and it has aged very poorly. Uh, the more I do, like, for instance, if I put a movie on the solid state and then I'm on the plane and I want to watch my movie, uh, it sometimes will stutter or stagger while it's playing it. Uh, it has to physically, the way that the data is shuffled around on the device itself, it actually has to kind of race to get to the next piece of data. And because of its being serial in nature... It sometimes doesn't get the data fast enough. There's no damage to the content I'm trying to see. It's just not coming back fast enough for me to actually view it. Now, today's new generation of solid-state disks, like I said, some of them have added buffers. So like the Intel's and several of the others, like uh, SanDisk, have added some buffers. So they actually will get uh, better performance. And they are lickety-split from that standpoint. So you are going to gain fast, good performance. Uh, If you're going to do it like in a Mac or MacBook Air, they also, the OS actually takes care of a lot of functions as well. So you may not even notice any issues from a standpoint of staggering or anything. It's going to look really smooth, uh, smooth as butter. But then you've still got that other issue, which is, you know, okay, I I want 500 gigs of movies and I can get a 500 gig hard drive that fits in the same device. Right.
0: Well, space constraints aside, um, would you go in favor of the flash drive?
1: I would go in favor of a solid-state disk today if I did not need the space, if if space was not the issue. From a speed standpoint, and also there's a couple other functions that are very important from a standpoint of uh, battery power. There's been a lot of arguments about the fact that a flash drive or a solid-state disk drive will not, um, some of them do suck down more power and that they do you know, take the same amount of power as some physical disk where they spin. But under real-world circumstances, and I've seen this in my laptop, it's added about two hours of battery life to my laptop. So, hmm. you know, two hours is substantial. And if uh, under real-world use, you know, basically what's happening is everything is being cached, so it's not constantly active. And... Physically, a solid-state disk only has two states. It only has uh, basically a idle mode, which typically in most cases runs at less than a watt. And then when you're actually using it, um, you know, physically it will, you know, it may be three watts or something like that while it's actually physically using uh, the device itself. But in the long run, it's going to take less battery power. It's going to give you back a lot. You also have less problems with heat and no fans, so there's no moving parts to worry about. It's very quiet, um, and you know those those are those are really beneficial from that standpoint. You don't have to worry about if you're going to drop your laptop, whether or not you're going to lose your data because there is no moving parts and the head doesn't slide across the platter. Right. So there is a lot of benefits to having a solid state disk in a laptop. In a desktop, I would still say let's go with physical disk. I would still say let's get a regular spinning disk. Just right now, because the standpoint is it's going to cost you a lot more with that being the, the least benefit. You're not going to pick your desktop up and walk away with it. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of benefit to having a non-spinning disk uh, in your physical desktop.
0: Okay, but okay, that's cool. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, um, I, I, have an, I have an Asus netbook that has a solid-state drive or a flash drive. Um I loved it for that reason because it's a netbook. You're going to be carrying it around. You're going to be bumping it around. You don't want to have a you know a hard drive that can be damaged rather easily. Are you gonna Are you gonna miss the good old hard drives? I mean, is this nostalgic for you in any way? Or
1: no, uh, I'm one of these guys who I I mean I like change, so that's fine with me. I I do not care that we have spinning discs or you know whether the data recovery company goes out of business because nobody's using it anymore. <laughs> Whatever the next thing is, is what I'll be doing. Huh. So you know from that standpoint i'm not gonna i'm fine with change so i'm not going to be nostalgic about it at all
0: is this creeping up on you or faster than you you thought or are you guys ready for this
1: um it is i don't know anybody is technically ready yet because at least from a standpoint of from a data recovery perspective it is a much different line of work you become more of an electrical engineer than Hmm. a mechanical engineer Hmm. so right now a lot of our functions are mechanical in nature uh replacing heads platters dealing with you know firmware and things like that soldering boards but Uh, But from the standpoint of trying to figure out what's wrong with your solid-state disk, it's going to be much more complicated, uh, at least from what it looks like right now. I think as time goes on and they develop better and better methods for doing these recoveries, uh, most of the data recovery industry, some of the stuff coming from China and coming from Russia, is really robust, and they do a great job of actually trying to come up with an automated way. And, and when I say automated, it's still manual in terms of data recovery, but you can still spend a, you know an hour and figure out what's wrong with it, and sure. then it, you know maybe take you you know two hours to replace the part or something. Sure. But But um, so I don't think anybody's ready yet. I just think that uh, it's it's going to change. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. You know, it's kind of like you know now nobody buys you know CDs; they download MP3s. So it's going to happen. It's going to change.
0: Yeah, I'm all in favor for it too. I like the technology. You know, there's a, there is software out there that recovers data from flash drives. I mean, you can buy a lot, there's a lot of free utilities, like, you know, if you lose your pictures and this kind of thing. Do you feel like as time goes on, it's going to, when the software gets more advanced, it's going to be actually easier to recover data from these flash drives than it, was, than it would be to get it off of a hard drive?
1: No, not not from that perspective. What these tools are doing that you're talking about, they're not doing anything at really the chip level or anything from that standpoint. They don't even know how to communicate with it. They have no idea what the encoding scheme or what kind of content that is. They're just
0: undeleting basically. Yeah, it's still okay.
1: just raw data. They just ask for a sector, they get a sector back. If they get back what they expect, then maybe they can do something with it. I mean, they're not doing anything from that standpoint that is that is any different than what we've done with hard drives or physical sure. data from that standpoint. But even hard drives though, there there are some pieces of software that can deal with ECC errors and different things like that, but um we, we have a little more functionality from that standpoint. Right now, your issue with most of the devices that you're going to be talking to that are Flash is how do we communicate with the device because we're completely dependent upon the proprietary interface that was given to us and the proprietary format that was laid out for it. And while that might be true of hard drives, in 30 years they've reverse-engineered most of that so we actually know what that function is and we have devices and equipment to deal with that. Hmm. But right now in Flash... Uh, we don't really have that, and we and everybody's fighting to say, oh well, my proprietary format is the format that everybody should license, so that you know you all can have the same you know great stuff that we have. Huh. So Sand Sandisk wants to sell theirs to everybody, and you know there's there's probably 13 or 14 different encoding methods from that standpoint f- that everybody wants to use. And somebody's obviously using, you know, the cheapest ones. You're getting stuff from China that the encoding format is just, you know, the basics, the v- bare basics. And you as a consumer don't know the difference. So if you can save a couple of pennies on every one that you sell, you're going to say, you know, you're going to make thousands of dollars. Uh, and there's, but that no, there's is, nothing
0: really wrong with that then just doing the basics, right?
1: Uh, there is in some cases. There really is a difference in quality. If you actually go and buy something like a SanDisk device and you – and you play with it, use it, and and do things with it over time. You're going to find that it is much more robust. It is going to live longer. It will probably perform better than going to you know Micro Center and buying the six dollar you know lifetime warranty you know ten gig stick or whatever the heck they have there. You know eight I, gig stick. Oh man,
0: I ha- I have to stop you here because you're so right. I have a Sandisk a one gig uh, cruiser I've been using forever, and um, I go through those Micro Center sticks like they're nothing. You know. Mm. It's it's very true. I mean, they're just, of course. I mean, they're built cheaper than. I, but I didn't. I actually didn't know. I didn't really click right now till you mentioned it that Sandisk could be using a different type of encoding.
1: Oh, they definitely are. Sandisk has their own. They're one of the longest ones that have been around for a while. Uh, so theirs is True FFS. So True FFS is uh, probably one of the better encoding formats, which is also the same one that at least up until recently um, Samsung had been licensing from them. Because Samsung is the reseller for iPods and iPhones. So the devices that have been in all of the content from Apple have come from Samsung who licensed their stuff from SanDisk.
0: Huh. So you think like in the future, you know how we're right now we're buying like Seagates and Western Digitals and Mac stores, we're gonna be buying like Lexars and SanDisks and these kind of things as far yeah, as Yeah, if
1: if you look too at the market, most of the the vendors that are making flash devices are coming from a semiconductor type background, whereas the hard drive manufacturers are not really making any flash devices yet. Very few of them have any experience in them. And, there, and you you actually see this diversity in how, how well equipped some of them are because like for instance, I mentioned that the first uh, solid state disc when they came out didn't have any buffers. Well, the thing is, is that hard drives and hard drive manufacturers knew for years that if you didn't put cash in there, that when the drive actually has to do something else for some reason or you have a failure, let's say you have a bad block and the drive has to take a little extra time to deal with that failure, if you don't have cash, you are either going to lose something or it's going to cause a problem or it's going to die or you know, you're know you not going to get a response from it. Right. And it seems like it took the semiconductor company some time to realize that. <laughs> that uh, and so that's why none of those first generations or it might have just been also a cost thing they're really expensive they were really expensive at that time and to add anything else to it would have just increased the cost but now you'll see like you know intel in their x25s and stuff like that they've put memory in them and they are actually high performing devices and they've been getting better reviews than most of the other vendors uh, especially for for that same time period so there really is a, a major difference in the quality and them learning how the process works but eventually what's going to happen is if the hard drive manufacturers don't consume some other uh you know semiconductor company they're not going to have a solid state disk uh you know right now western digital had bought a company but uh, i don't believe that, uh, that seagate has bought a company yet i believe that seagate's kind of holding back
0: hm oh well, i mean they're probably like you know like ready to pounce you probably think or I, 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 you know, I have a tough time believing that they're not thinking about it. But um, Well, I, I'm yeah. sure
1: that they're thinking about it, but again, you know, for them to come from where they're at to kind of come to a, a silicon, you yeah. know, they're having to deal with uh, what the manufacturing process is. And then they're going to play, play a little bit of catch up, too, because the issue now becomes there's already new generations of of memory companies that have been doing this for 20 years, 30 years that have been trying new materials and they're starting to get more robust materials and they're moving into multi-layer chips instead of single layer chips. So they've already advanced to a certain complexity that, you know, if you're, only doing hard drives that if you don't consume one of these companies and get one or buy one or or something else you're not going to advance as fast if you're trying to develop it internally and you know i I might bite my tongue one day maybe they'll come out with something or you know maybe they'll you know buy it from somebody else but obviously western digital thought that it was a, a good idea that when they bought another company
0: oh yeah i think it's smart you know from what i know i think it's smart anyway all right um you know any last remarks you have on this we're going to get to some uh some listener emails that have been sent in questions for you. Um, but let's wrap this, uh, (laughs) this, this discussion up if you want.
1: The uh, the the main thing I would say is that really consider what you're using this device for and what the quality of it is for the price. Because like I said, if you're it's fine to buy these micro center sticks if what you're storing is just uh, temporary or second copies or third copies. But it's very very difficult to resolder chips or even if just the USB connector breaks off to actually fix it if it is the only copy of the thing that you have. So it's better to have something that's a little more robust and spend the extra ten or twenty dollars and get something that's that's going to last a little longer
0: cool good advice alright Scott let's read a couple emails here this is from one of our listeners who um, is affectionately known as door to door geek he calls into the show quite a bit and we, he sends us a lot of emails and gives us a lot of actually he gives us a lot of tips on, on, what's, on what to do as far as computer repair too so he's a he's a great asset to the PodNuts community he wanted me to ask you um, how do you feel about whole drive encryption does it tax the drive? Are they all the same? Do you suggest one over the other?
1: Um, now, as far as whole disk encryption goes, now, there's, there's two ways I can talk about this. One is the specific question that he answered, but also from a data recovery perspective. Um, it, it doesn't tax the drive so much. I mean, you're still writing data. It's still writing it in 512-byte sectors. So from that standpoint, it's not really taxing the drive. It's taxing your CPU. The processor that you're actually running on your machine has to recalculate whatever is encrypted to put it onto the disk and then decrypt it. And you do lose a couple of percentages of your CPU's usage uh, to actually do that. But now our processors are much, much more powerful than they were, you know, even just five years ago. So most of them you won't even notice it. So I'm running whole disk encryption. I'm running – I personally am running PGP uh, on – Uh, max and on windows and you barely notice it at all you will notice if let's say you had like three movies and you wanted to play them all at the same time you would actually see the impact of it uh, while it was physically running but i it's not going to physically do any more damage to the disc from a data recovery perspective you can actually recover a drive that is encrypted without decrypting the content uh physically I look at sectors and I have many like banks and stuff that have sent me encrypted disks using other types of stuff besides PGP. Um there's a there's you know, safe disk easy and there's a couple of different ones. Um and point sec is another one that's owned by checkpoint which is a popular one but from that standpoint you can actually recover the damaged sectors and rebuild the sectors and then give it back to them still encrypted and then they can unlock it from that standpoint so uh, you can lose about five percent of the sectors and it still be able to be unlocked in Hmm. most cases and get the files back
0: i see and have to be unlocked though you couldn't unlock it through um the recovery any in any way right
1: Well, you can. Like, you know, for instance, if I have PGP on my machine and I'm repaired it enough that I can actually get the drive to physically be seen by PGP, it'll ask me for a key, and I could do that. But there's a lot of places that won't give you the keys if it's encrypted. Right. So they usually have a key server. Most enterprises will have a key server, and they will store these these keys, and they'll be able to get it back themselves once you're actually done with this recovery. Uh, but you won't see files. It's a lot easier for me to deal with files, and when I'm actually dealing with an encrypted disk, I don't know what the data looks like. I don't know what I'm going to give them when it gets back to them. They're going to have to decrypt it and look for themselves, whereas if I am physically take a disk, you have OSs and you have all this other crap on there you don't need, and if I'm able to actually repair the disk enough to plug it in and be able to see a file system I can go straight for the My Documents folder. I don't have to waste time on Windows. Right. Um, I have special tools that will actually, uh, even in a protected environment, do that hmm. and actually allow you to actually just go after like the Documents and Settings folder and rebuild the clusters without actually having to rebuild sectors.
0: Huh. That's pretty cool. Do you suggest one type of uh, drive encryption or one, one format over the other? or? or-
1: Well, you know, there is a a lot of different types of encryption from that standpoint. Most of them are based on whether or not you're in an enterprise. So when you're looking at the Vistas and and most of the other that are not commonly available unless you're buying like 10 licenses or 100 licenses at a time, that's going to be your limiting factor. But you know for the most part pgp has been one of the main corporate environments that's still physically available to the end user and there's a lot of lower end pieces of software that are less expensive that will actually do them like uh, bestcrypt and things like that uh, i've i've had some experience with those and they've been pretty good uh, i really haven't had any major failures using things like bestcrypt or uh, gpg which is the open source version hmm. and then truecrypt truecrypt is free And TrueCrypt is an awesome uh, encryption program. You actually feel like you should be paying for it. It's actually so well done that TrueCrypt makes you feel guilty that you didn't pay for it. (laughs) That's
0: that's pretty cool. Good for them. All right, this next question. Is SATA going to be the standard drive connector for any length of time, you think?
1: I I think that SATA will be the the connector all the way through as it's continuing to go into solid state. I kind of predict that for the most part, as far as laptops go almost everything will probably be solid state or heading towards solid state, depending on size, all the way up through, you know, 212. Two By the time we get to 212, it will most likely be all solid state for all almost every laptop unless we get uh, some major, you know, issues dealing with size. If somebody comes out with 2-terabyte laptop hard drives, it may obviously trump, <laughs> you know, a 500-gig, you know, uh, drive from that standpoint. Yeah. But uh, but I believe that SATA is probably going to end up being the the connector that's going to survive we do have one other connector which most people don't realize is in most netbooks and subcompacts and that's the ZIF connector the ZIF connector is actually a pata connector so it's the same as the parallel ata mm-hmm. which, um, but it's but the connector itself is a ribbon cable so you actually will just slide it in they don't stand up very well they don't last very long you can only do like 20 connections before they like fall apart but uh But that is one of the ones that's in the small 1.8-inch drives that you would actually see, like, in a MacBook Air or something like that. Um, Tell me about most. Yeah, for the most part, I would say that the SATA connector is the most robust of the connectors that we have. We don't keep breaking off pins like we did with uh, IDE connectors and until the next thing changes, until until we get to like 2015 and then we're going to deal with a solid piece of metal being what we're going to store data. And, uh, there's a, there's a device that's called, uh, um, it's being actually developed by the same guy who developed the heads for the current hard drives, um, Stuart Parkins, and it's called, uh, domain walls and it's been renamed now into this marketing term called racetrack memory. Hmm. And if you look up racetrack memory, you'll see, um, that it's it's it looks really profound and there's really some demos and stuff that are working and he actually thinks that for the most part that's gonna that's gonna overtake physical discs and uh solid state discs wow. by 20, 2015 or twenty sixteen. Jeez.
0: It's going so fast. Now I was gonna say I I worked on a Vio that had one of those one point eight inch uh drives with the zif connector. And um you know I think it's a great technology, but just try finding a zif to a USB adapter these days. It's not the easiest thing to find. But um, the, I, did, I did find it, and I did get the data off of it.
1: There are a couple of forensic sites that sell those uh, fairly commonly, but they're like 40 bucks to actually get the ZIF connectors. And then you've got to keep buying those little ribbon cables because they split yeah. in the, as yeah. you're using them. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, they're not very durable. No. Okay, uh, speaking of ribbon cable, let me just ask his last thing here. It's taking a flat ribbon cable and cutting down the length between the cables and taping it so it is a small round cable, a dangerous or bad thing?
1: Well, I would say it's obviously a lot better to buy something that's already manufactured rather than, like, cutting it down and doing stuff. The issue, for the most part, is that, okay, so the cable, basically electrons are spinning around the cable, and if you bend the cable or you turn the cable or you make a, you know, a right angle, as the electrons have to be redirected, they actually will spin off of the end, like, basically as it hits that corner, you're actually going to lose a few electrons and then it will continue on its on its new path. Hmm. So you're actually going to degradate the signal if you're playing with it. So I don't suggest like cutting it and then redoing them unless you're doing like a perfect connection because you're going to lose some of those electrons as you're actually doing that. Hmm. But there are obviously, you know, ribbon cables that have already been done for you like that so that they're actually all bound together. So that's the idea between going th- from a 40-pin cable to an 80-pin cable because what currently, when they when they had, you know, like 33, uh, when you had, you know, physically you had drives that were running at um, at a lower speed, physically it only had 40 pins, and only 39 of them were used. But when we went to, like, UDMA, where we actually had a faster transfer rate, they went to an 80-pin cable, and only 39 of those pins is still used. The other cables were actually just used to limit the interference and to keep the electrons from spinning off and and basically colliding with each other on the cable. Are you serious? So, the, so the, yeah, the cable is more dense because hmm. of that. That is interesting. But but those pins aren't used. They're just a cable that's in. They're just extra wires in the cable to actually keep the the electrons from running in and colliding with each other.
0: <laughs> I had no idea. I was wondering what that was. I, would, I actually was wanted to ask you that as we got onto the subject, but you, you just answered it.
1: And that's the same thing with twisted pair on Ethernet as well uh, because there's, half of the wire is not actually used. Huh. Half of the wire is just, it's just all bound together and then shielded so that it all is in a bundle and it just kind of keeps the electrons from, from bouncing in and colliding with each other.
0: Huh. Amazing. All right, let, let's read uh, one more email here. This is from Blaine. He says, uh, this is questions for Scott, he says, question one, which storage controller chips uh, you found to be most reliable and which ones aren't, like Intel, Jmicron, Oxford, VIA, etc.? Uh,
1: I, I like the Intel chipset. It does, it, it is robust and there are, you know, drivers and stuff that actually help you do certain functions. Uh, the Intel chipset is probably one of the most robust that's on motherboards themselves. Some of the other ones that that you see are not so robust, at least as far as their uh, capability for doing like RAID and those kind of things. They fall apart, and you you have trouble putting them back together. But I'm a big fan of uh, High Point controllers. Um, High Point's chipset is, and at one time um, the High Point chipset was actually what was used in the Adaptec controllers as well. But I, you know, if you're going to do a host-based process. And when I say host-based, you actually have a difference between what you're using for processing, say, controllers that have their own processor, like a RISC processor. Those are called discrete controllers. And you can buy them. You go to a store and you buy you know, a 300 or or greater cost um, controller. Those are going to have their own processor, and they're going to be able to do things more robustly than the host-based controller, which is using your CPU instead of having their own processor. Hmm. Um, and so that's what you're looking at when you're looking at the Intel storage matrix chips and you're looking at, you know, Oxford and HPTs. You're looking at um, any of those that are going to end up being host-based controllers. Um, and, and those vendors may sell discrete controllers, but they're not going to be on your motherboard and they're not going to be, uh, you know, the most common that you're going to see on the shelf at Fry's or something. Right. So you you really should be looking. If you really want higher-end workstation components, you should be looking at the discrete controllers. But the if you add more drives, let's say – you're using the motherboard's chipset and it has two drives as you add more drives it's going to use more of the processor power to actually control that so you're going to lose more processor power from your from your physical motherboard itself from it using the the physical cpu hmm. as you're adding more drives so if you try to build an array array that's a you know a, a raid 5 array that has eight drives in it and you're using the motherboard's uh processor then you're going to lose you know 12% or something of your workstation speed
0: what do they sell? Like IDE cards that that uh, might be able to handle that, or they
1: they do have IDE cards or SATA co- controllers and things like that. That actually you have your choice, either with the processor or without a processor. Um, so like High Point sells both IDE and SATA controllers that will have you know for IDE there'll be eight drives that you can control, and for SATA I think they also have some that have eight drives on them as well. But they're host based, so they're using your 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 CPU instead of their own processor.
0: And uh, that's I, the difference. I got what you're saying. I, I'm actually meant to say PCI. Like, do they sell cards where you go in your PCI slot that have these controllers on them to so it doesn't take your CPU, or would, would it still be doing that?
1: It would still be using your CPU. Okay. It, that's not the difference. You can still put, a, you know, the high point controller is going to be a PCI slot or you know whatever whatever slot you want to buy. I got gotcha. you. But uh, but they're going to have they're going to use your CPU, and mm-hmm. they do they do sell them. If you're not spending it, you can tell the difference in the packaging because if you look at the you know, back of it, they'll have a speed on the processor. If there's no speed on the processor then and it's less than $300, it probably is a host-based controller. It's going to use your own processor.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay, Scott, let me ask another question here. He, the, this is from Blaine. He says, "Hey, has Scott found any drive mounting orientations to be better, vertical, horizontal, etc."
1: No, I, I don't think that there's any orientation that's better. Physically what happens is in a drive um, – whatever angle that you put it at, it kind of gets used to. It has adaptives and it has parameters that it learns what its angle is and how it needs to control its own speed for its own platters and the head movement. And it kind of gets used to it and stores that in some cases on the platters themselves or in a chipset, uh, uh, like a NAND chipset on the board itself. What the problem is, though, is let's say you have a drive that's sitting there and it's been running for a really long time, let's say in a server, um There's little fragments and little metal pieces that basically will come off of the platters or off of the head assembly. And the air that's done as the platter spins up, that's called the air bearing, spins that content out into a little filter. And this little filter is holding those little pieces and chunks behind it. And when you take the drive out and you change its orientation, you switch from one orientation to another or carry it across the room to go do a backup, sometimes those little metal fragments might come out from behind that filter and get stuck. In between the head assembly or I mean a lot of us have done that where we actually took a drive and we said we need to go back this up or we go move it and we're just like I know we need it but we'll we'll just move it and then we'll back it up Hmm. and then uh and then the drive dies and you never see any content from it again in some cases that's actually what's happening is those metal fragments are coming out and getting stuck or jammed um, in between the head assembly and causing physical damage
0: I I think it's fascinating that these drives learn like that like learn which way they're laying and Store that information. It's like uh, it's like they're alive.
1: Well, they are. They actually have some of the newer drives have some accelerometers on the board, and they, they're they're primarily you know like the uh, iPhone uses an accelerometer so that you can like move the thing around and yeah. play a game. Mm-hmm. But on the drives, they're vibration accelerometers, so they're basically looking at like the orientation, the angle, and the vibration of the drive itself, so they can control you know speed and angle and things like that.
0: Fascinating. Okay, question three from Blaine, and uh, I think we're going to end off after this one, Scott. Um, He says, has Scott found any external enclosures to have better build quality than others? Which are the more reliable and less reliable brands?
1: This is coming back to the same thing that we had when you're dealing with, like, you know, a USB memory stick, cost versus, versus, you know, everything's about the chip that they want to use for the control board itself. Because all the enclosures, no matter which enclosure you buy, they're going to buy their chip from somebody. And so... The cheaper ones are going to have, you know, the cheap. I just got it from China kind of thing. Right. And then the higher end ones that you're looking at are going to have some well known or decent name brand that's going to to last and and survive uh, longer than its warranty or try to survive longer than its warranty. So- Um, so I'm, I'm still of that mindset of, you know, when you're looking at them, they just all look the same these days when you're physically looking at the box or you're looking at the device. Um, I'm typically staying with, uh, with some better known stuff. Uh, you know, I guess the least of the quality I would be dealing with maybe would be like Vantec or something like that. Um, I don't just want to get some no name brand enclosure. Um, but you know, there, there, there are obviously... Some better ones than uh, than others, and if you're buying one that's already got a hard drive or something in it, like you know the Mac Store One Touch or something, it's going to have a, a higher quality chipset in it than you're going to get from just uh, you know some StarTech thing off
0: the shelf. <laughs> yeah, and is it's going to affect speed at all?
1: It may in some cases. Uh any chipsets that have uh they have control over your drive, so it can affect speed or how fast that you're gonna be able to process the data coming from it. Um yeah, it's it's uh it's certainly possible that the quality is gonna be is gonna affect speed as well. And that's true of those microcenter memory sticks as well. If you compare the speed of the same type of, of chip and the same size, with a better quality one, you'll actually see that you might get four to five times faster the speed on a sand disk than you do off of microcenter memory sticks.
0: Yeah, that, that's actually another thing I can attest to. And um, it actually happened on my, not on a flash drive, like a USB flash drive, but on my, my Asus uh, EPC. It came with a four gigabyte drive that was, was just unusable. Was, that's how slow it was. And I upgraded to a, was a company called RunCore. It was like the drive to get, and they sold them on eBay. It was the drive to get for the EPC, and that thing just cruises. I've never, I actually have never seen Windows load so fast on any machine I've ever worked on. Um, so it's huge differences between these flat, the flash memory, especially the write speed.
1: Yes, right. the The write speed is the biggest deal with uh, even the solid state discs themselves uh, is the read and the write speed because now even from first generation to second generation, they've quadrupled in speed. Huh. So when you're looking at like an Intel X25, it's it's four to five times faster than the first generations of the Sandisk.
0: Hmm. Smaller and faster. I think that's like what we're what everybody's going for, right?
1: Right. Uh, well, always smaller, faster, larger. Every, every technology that has happened for hard drives, period, is all based on on getting more data in the smaller space. Huh. It's, it's all about density.
0: Huh. Uh, last thing on this external enclosures. Um, is it true that like some of them will put the drive into a sleep mode? Some, some won't, like the cheaper ones yes. won't? Okay.
1: That is correct. Uh, now, some of them really depend upon the drive itself too because some of the drives have a green mode where they can actually go to sleep and you can put the drive to sleep. And there are some... Uh, older drives that uh, don't have that capability and some of the drives didn't have the ability to spin down and go to sleep. But there's actually an ATA sleep command. And if it's plugged into your computer, you can send the command to it and tell it to go to sleep. That's what Windows does when it has its power saving features as well. Um, But some of them will do it automatically on these external enclosures so that, you know, hopefully if something falls off a table or you whack it, that it's, you know, the head's not going to be, moving or, or hitting anything. Right. But uh, So, like, all, all the Western Digital, all the new book drives and everything, they're yeah. all green, so they all shut down the drive on its own. Um, like, but, like if
0: you're not using it for a while, right?
1: Yeah, if you're not using it, and it, it really isn't for that long, actually, in some cases. I think it's like five minutes in some cases, but... <laughs> Uh, But for the most part, they will spin it down. They will put it to sleep and keep your heads, and that helps with heat and a couple other things as well. But your real problem with most drives is during the power-on cycle. Um, So when they go to sleep, like the Seagate (laughs) firmware problem that they have, if you left it on and it didn't go to sleep, it would be great. There would be no problem with it. But when it went to sleep and woke back up or was powered back on – that's when the firmware problem would kick in and then you couldn't read your data from it. So <laughs> as long as you can keep it going, you uh you could read
0: your data. Just, I guess that's a major trade-off. Yes. <laughs> All right, well this is good stuff. And uh I think we're going to end end off the show for this week, Scott. Okay. Um great stuff. I you know, I always enjoy talking to you. You know, it's it's fun. I learn a lot and I think everybody else does too. Um hopefully we'll have more questions If you guys uh, have any questions for Scott, you know, send them to mail at podnuts.com. And definitely check out Scott's website. If you have anybody, and I know you guys, you know, out there do have people come to you and say, can you get data off of this drive? Um, Can you recover my files? And if you think you can't, you know, that's what Scott's here for. That's what he does. So myharddrivedied.com is his website. Um, Anything else you want to say, Scott?
1: Um, the only other thing is about uh, I do teach classes, so I am doing SANS classes. And so if you go to org and you look for a class called the SEC 606, it's a security uh, 606 class. It's data recovery forensics, basically. And we're doing the whole process. We go end-to-end, like how to replace heads, how to deal with platters and things like that. So if you're interested in that process, it's something you might want to look at.
0: Sounds great. Okay, Scott, well, I'll be talking to you in a month. Great. Okay. Look forward to it. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up episode two of My Hard Drive Died. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next time.